Let's pray. Dear Lord, in your mercy, grant us truth and help us to look forward towards the hope that so binds us in this life and a newness of joy, Lord, that all things will pass and a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem will be unto us. Fill us, Lord, with a joy overflowing and a life that knows no bounds, ability to see past our current sufferings, Lord, and to remain in hope and faith and love with you. We ask this, O Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Amen. We're coming to the end of uh, Revelation. Uh, some of you may be wondering how do we unpack uh, what happened in chapter 20, uh, chapter 21, and chapter 22. Uh, in chapter 20 is this mention of the 1,000 years. And so I thought I'd uh, make a side mention about this millennial issue. Uh, for, for those who are academically inclined, they'll say, okay, how do we interpret this millennium? Uh, I'm not going to go into that because people actually do PhDs for that. You can spend eight years and still not come to any final conclusion. But most scholars agree that there are three common views, uh, what we call the, the pre-millennial, the post-millennial, and the a-millennial position. Uh, the distinctions between the three relate to when the 1,000 years occur. Now, the uh, post-millennial uh, is the one that commonly is first introduced. And post-millennial means that this 1,000 years comes after Jesus arrives, after which everybody is ruling together with Jesus for this period of 1,000 years. It refers to the post-millennial as after Jesus comes again, the second time. Uh, the Pre-millennial uh, is referring to a situation where uh, the 1,000 years occurs just at the end of the church age, right? before Jesus comes, but at the end of the church age, which means it, uh, it is much later and it's a period of 1,000 years uh, before the second coming of Jesus. And the third position is what we call the amillennial, uh, which means it is not really talking about a period of time, but a symbolic uh, representation. Now, the, a better term for a millennial is actually inaugurated millennium. Inaugurated millennium means, uh, and this is the definition of a millennial, which is that the 1,000 years began at the point after Christ was crucified, dead, and resurrected. It is from that point onwards that this 1,000 years is now occurring. And the reason why they say this is because Christ has come in victory. He has defeated uh, the devil, and therefore the devil has been thrown and been constrained. And the gospel and the mystery of Christ and the whole of salvation is now fully revealed. And therefore the devil is contained. And there is this period, symbolically 1,000 years, which is long, but still numbered. Uh, I tend to follow that a millennial position. 
but scholars will always talk about all three, and most scholars tend to go towards that A millennial position. Now, that's just about this uh, 20,000 year thing. Uh, we come to chapter 21, and we arrive at this point where judgment has been given. Uh, the dead are judged, uh, Satan is thrown down, and he is essentially put into this sea of fire of uh, sulfur. And not only that, um, the entire heavens and the earth flee from the presence of God. In a sense, all of uh, creation has been consumed. It cannot stand in the presence of God and a new heaven and a new earth uh, is revealed. So one thing that I'd like to touch on is uh, what do we understand of a new creation? Now, I'd like you to just think a little bit about this, you know. Um, I don't know about you. Uh, I have friends who actually, when they buy a book, they look at the cover, they look at the first chapter, and then they flip to the last chapter, and then they say, I want to know how it ends. And they say, I want to know how it ends so that I'll decide whether it's a book worth buying. I said, isn't that not fun? You already know the ending before. I said, no, it's okay. I want to know the ending, but I will read about how it arrives at the ending. <laughs> because we're doing Revelation 20, 20, uh, 21, 22, in a way, we're being told this is what the ending looks like. We're told the ending is good. <laughs> Even even if the current situation seems terrible and there's a whole drama and uh, tears and suffering and pain, all of us are being told the ending is good. Wait for the ending. But I'd like you to consider this. What does it mean when we say a new creation? Let me just read this again. Verse uh, 1 or chapter 21, and again, uh, good to have your Bible, whether it's on a device or in the book with you. And uh, by the way, there's a sermon outline in the middle of the bulletin as well, so you can fill in uh, the blanks there. Verse 1 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. First heaven, first earth, where we are in right now, what God has created. A new heaven and a new earth, and... Uh, there was no longer any sea. Okay. So we have this particular uh, statement that we need to think about where there is a new heaven, a new earth, uh, no longer any sea. And later on in the verse there, God says, I am making everything new. In verse 5, he who was seated on the throne, God, said, I am making everything new. He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now let's try and unpack that. When someone says, I'm making everything new, God, or I'm making new, is it a replacement or is it a renewal? Which would you rather have? A replacement or a renewal? Think about it hard. Because it does affect what your understanding of what the ending will be like. Not long ago, uh, I suddenly discovered uh, that my driving license had expired. 
uh, one of our office staff, the uh, property maintenance officer, encountered an accident on the road and we were helping him, or rather I went there to try and help him in order to, to sort some of the things out with the hospital. So he passed me his driving license and we were trying to figure out this driving license, where's the, is there a driving license number or what? Uh, but it goes based on the IC. And whilst I was comparing my, my driving license to his, I realized, hey, mine's actually expired already. <laughs> not that long ago, mind you. I've not been driving around for the last year without a license. It's just like uh, expired like three, four days uh, just after. So I searched online and they said, okay, in order for you to renew your license, you actually have to go to the uh, post office or the JPJ. And uh, you, in a way, uh, I was told, you actually have to pay a fine. Uh, if you're late, even if it's one day late, you are supposed to pay a fine. It's 150 ringgit, which is quite painful given that uh, one year you pay 30 ringgit for the, the, the renewal itself. I noticed some of you panicking already. Some might be even reaching into their wallet to check their <laughs> driving license now. But here's the thing, I went there uh, to the post office and I, I said, you know, uh, I want to renew my driving license. She took my IC and she put it into the reader, checked my details uh, and effectively reissued me a new driving license. Now, to me, that's an example of someone making new. Not only did she replace my card, I actually have two cards now. I had my old card, which is expired, but I have a new card. But this is a replacement of my old card, but a renewal of my driving license. Because in essence, it, it represents the same person, it's still me. It's not a total replacement in the sense that my absolute identity is no longer there. I have no, no uh, history at all. In fact, it remembers that I have been a driver Incidentally, if you don't renew your driving license for two years, this is a public service announcement. <laughs> if you don't renew your driving license for two years, you actually have to go back to being a P driver. That's what it says. Because they don't know whether you've been driving for the last two years. You effectively have to start all over again. So, uh, shift your mind back from driving license <laughs> to text. God is making new again. It's a new creation, but He is making new. He says here in verse 5, I am making everything new. Making present continuous. In other words, although we've not reached the end, He is already at it. He's making everything new in the sense that He's already building this new Jerusalem, building this new heaven. In particular, this new Jerusalem, because this new Jerusalem is us. And I want to make this interesting comment because uh, yesterday I had an interesting conversation over the table about, hey, pastor, do you ever want to go to Jerusalem? And I said, not really. I said, why? I said, several reasons. One, uh, it's quite costly. It takes a lot of time. And two, I don't particularly uh, subscribe to this idea that Jerusalem, this physical place, Jerusalem, where it is right now, is the holy city where I'll end up in. Uh, my concept of Jerusalem, even when we talk about Israel, which Israel, if you ask a Bible scholar and says, you talk about Israel, which Israel are you referring to? Israel, uh, the man called Jacob, 
who was renamed Israel, or his 12 tribes, uh, his 12 children, who was later called the tribe of Israel, or is it the nation Israel, which was divided into northern Israel and southern Judah kingdom, or is it the exile kingdom, or is it the Israel of the believers, or is it political, geographical Israel now? <laughs> So when people say, I want to go to Israel, to Jerusalem, I'm always thinking, which Jerusalem are you thinking of? And to them, they are referring to the spiritual Israel, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of the Revelation, as being the current political, physical Jerusalem, which is not the case. And so I've had some very kind souls who said, yeah, we'd love to sponsor you to go. And I said, actually, it might be better if you gave it to some better cause. Uh, so that's a, that's a bit of a side statement. But here, there is a new Jerusalem that's being made, and this Jerusalem is not a Jerusalem of the Jews. It is a Jerusalem of all the nations and tribes and languages being brought together, the people of God. It is a renewal and a replacement of what initially started as the city of David, this Zion this holy city. So, let's go back again to verse 1. Verse 1 begins with this statement, I saw a new heaven. I saw a new earth. I saw no sea. <laughs> new heaven, new earth, no sea. Hey, hey, uh, okay, uh, that's a renewal. That one's a replacement. I don't see any sea anymore. And you might be thinking, What? <laughs> I love going to the beach. I love going to the sea. Why is there no sea? Now, let me uh, quell your worries here. No sea doesn't mean no water. And again, in the symbolic ideas and concept of uh, apocalyptic understanding, you must understand what did the sea represent to the people at the time. Now, I'll touch on that a bit later. But the fourth thing that is new is a new Jerusalem which is later equated to the holy city, right? which the Jews understood as Jerusalem, the city of David. Uh, but then later in this same uh, chapter, it talks about Jerusalem as the bride of Christ. Now we know that the bride of Christ is the church. So what John is depicting here is a historical development of Jerusalem, the city, to now Jerusalem, the church. So really, when you ask me, would you like to visit Jerusalem, I am already there. <laughs> In the people of God who are together called the church. This is where I'm called to be. What you're seeing are basically stones <laughs> in Jerusalem where people used to walk around and in a, in a worse uh, type of situation, particularly oppressive uh, situations, conflict, war, property, power. So this new heaven, new earth, no sea, new Jerusalem. So let me now talk about what does it mean when we're given a vision of no sea? Again, earlier on, a couple of weeks back, I said it's not so much about visualizing, visualizing, but interpreting. So when we say that there is no sea, uh, what we're really referring to is in the ancient Near East, uh, in Mesopotamian, uh, Babylonian, uh, Semitic Jewish, and even the, the, the Greek ideas, 
the myth is always that uh, there's this sea mythology where all elements of darkness and evil rise up from the chaos and churning waters of the sea. That's the culture of that time. I think even in our Chinese or Indian or Malay culture, yeah, deep water always scares people. They say, I don't know what's underneath there. It might be some octopus or some crazy creature that will tear me down and kill me. Uh, and so there's this imagery and symbolism. But in particular, in Revelation, the sea is referred to as the place of the dead. In chapter 20, verse 13, the sea gives up its dead. Then Hades gives up its dead. And they're all gathered before the judgment seat. Uh, then there is the 13 verse 1. There's the realm of the Antichrist. So the dragon is by the seashore and is calling his beast to come out from the sea. So symbolically, apocalyptic literature has referred to the sea as the place and source of evil. Okay? Now, uh, dear friends, if you've been planning your cruise to go on wherever and you know, see and you say, oh, pastor say, uh, <laughs> the sea is this place of evil. Again, don't take it literally that all seas are evil. It is imagery. It's symbolic, right? So, so for those who take things literally, uh, take a check on that. Uh, it doesn't mean that the sea is evil and bad things come over. It's tending to indicate the chaos and the uh, uh, turmoil and the unpredictability okay, that goes against and kills and destroys coming from this particular realm. And then in 15.2, there is this sea of fire. Remember last week I mentioned that the sea of fire has now been this sea of glass mixed with fire. And it denotes here the sea is no longer churning and roiling, but the sea has been stilled. And it went back all the way to Exodus and even into Ezekiel when we talk about the throne of God, jasper, sapphire, glass, uh, reflecting that God is sovereign over the throne and has conquered all evil and stilled it. It's now silence. And so we're given this essential symbolic message to say, at the end of everything, now, all this while, it's been a depiction of history. What's now being shown to you in chapter 21 and 22 is after judgment. After judgment. What is being told to you is there is no longer evil. No longer things that, uh, that contradict or go against God. And then this statement, look, God's dwelling place. Let me read the portion that it says there. I heard a loud voice, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with man, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will be with them. I don't know how that strikes you. Uh, as a person who has read through the Bible, I will tell you that this phrase crops up everywhere. It is the lifelong goal and hope of everyone who is of God that He will be with us. i read that again. The dwelling of God is with men and He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. 
Verse 4 has always uh, caused people sometimes in the quietness of their own reading to weep. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, this word, he will be with them, in the Greek is this term, skenu. Skenu. That's a nice, lovely term to use on your loved ones. I'm going to skenu with you. I'm going to live with you. I will live with you. Does that speak to your heart? Does that answer your greatest fears? That you are not alone, that you will be with God, that when God is finally with us, you know, it's almost as if you've, you've not seen each other for a long time and you come back together. When you will be with each other, there's such a joy that overflows and overbounds. And our tears are all wiped away. There's this whole idea that the tears are wiped away and uh, he says, no more death. Now, uh, the English grammar is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. In other words, the greatest, uh, the greatest setback in terms of any relationship is the breaking of that relationship, either through uh, choice or through death. And what John is seeing as his vision is that there is no more death, no tears, no sorrow, no death, mourning, crying, or pain. Which in a me means for us, if you're going to do all this uh, dying and mourning and crying and pain, do it now. <laughs> you won't have a chance to do it later. I had a friend who asked me, why does it hurt so much? And I don't want to feel this pain. But I would say, don't say that. Because death, mourning, crying, and pain tell us that this person meant something to us. They filled a portion of our lives. And when it has been ripped out of you, it hurts. It should hurt. And if it doesn't hurt, I'd be wondering, are you really human? And so in all this life, we recognize that this pain that we go through is a benchmark to tell us that this is how bad it could be. But when finally God comes and the answer is given, we have given a greater depth of understanding how much joy it is. You know, if I want to know how, how deep or how wide it is, I want to know how far down it goes. That pain, that death, mourning, crying or pain tells me how far down it goes. And so when the joy finally comes, it tells me how wide it is and how deep it is and how long it is and how much there is. As opposed to a time when I've never felt that pain or death or because I prevented myself from actually ever having any relationship whatsoever just to defend myself. God says, the old order has passed. I am making everything new. He is at work now, making this new Jerusalem. And He is building all of these things together. 
That is a promise that is given to the seven churches. That is a promise that is given to everyone who is encountering pain, suffering, death, mourning right now. And that is why Jesus, when he comes and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Often we pray and we hope we want to be comforted now. <laughs> but in reality, the comfort that we're receiving is one where all this will never ever happen again. And so the essential message of Revelation is, wait for it. <laughs> the ending is really good. Until then, persevere, hold on, don't give up. John hears these words that these are trustworthy and true words. He's making a promise to us, you know, because in our pain, in our current suffering, we sometimes can't say, I can't, I can't seem holding, I can't seem to hold on to this. I can't see the joy or the ending because the current darkness is so strong. And this angelic voice is saying, these are trustworthy and true words. They are there, even though you may not be able to feel it. It's sometimes in the same way when parents actually tell the children, I love you. You may not feel it, but it's there. It's trustworthy and true. You can lean on it that no matter how bad things go, you can come back and it's a trustworthy and true thing that I will still love you. Those who have children kind of know this. It's something which you can't explain. And this is what God is in a way telling us, his children, trustworthy, true words. Though you may not understand this, it may be a discipline to you through this time, but when it finally comes, all things will be made well. It finishes in uh, verse 6 to 8, which I want to read out here. <clears throat> he said to me, this is the angelic being to John, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. All has been written. All has been said. Now, does it tell us about everything? No, it is not exhaustive, but it is sufficient. It tells us what we need to know. Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of water of life. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Now, you need to remember the whole analogy of what's been happening. As a result of judgment, as a result of the prayers of the saints, as a result of God's condemnation of the world, the world is polluted. Okay? The bowls of incense, the bowls of wrath has been poured out on the earth. So everything is basically polluted. Now, I'm telling this view biblically. Scientists will tell you the same. Our oceans are corrupted with lots of plastic. There is no place where you can get any real drinking water. And so, these words, even though written thousands of years ago, are still relevant to, now, to us now. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Water of life. 
which tends to indicate to us that those who drink of this water will live. That's where you get all this, like the fountain of youth uh, myth, and you know, holy grail, let's go find this, so that if we drink from it, we will live forever and ever. Again, symbolism that has been taken to a stand, uh, extent that made literal. God gives life, and this water of life is the Holy Spirit, the streams of living water. I will be His God, He will be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, and those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, I just want to, to talk about this. The victorious inherit all this is a statement that's given to us in 6 to 8. What is all this? What do you think it means? The victorious will inherit all this. I read from the NIV version that you have, he who, he who overcomes, he who is victorious, will inherit all this. And then he continues to say, and I will be his God and he will be my son. So what does all this referring to? What is the object of this particular statement? Are we inheriting the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem? Because that's what has been referred to all this while, all of this. Or is he referring to the next statement, which is, I will be their God and they will be, and, and he will be my son. I would suggest it's both. But to me, the greater one is that He will be my God. This is God saying, you know, I will be their God. In other words, when they call, He will respond, yes, I am their God. That's my God. It's a sign of ownership. As much as I am owned by Him, He is owned by me too. And that's why John always talks about this abiding in Christ, being in Him, so that you are in me, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, in the Spirit, and we're all a oneness of all. For those of us who live in this life, who have trying to decide, of all the things that I have, what do I want to invest it in? We often think in terms of how we want to invest it in our children's future, in our own immediate future. But God is in a way saying, really, what is worth investing in? Is it in the gospel and the salvation of all people because that's the only thing that you bring forward? Or is it in the comfortable life that you have now which pales in comparison to what you will have in the future? We need to understand this because knowing what is at stake determines how you understand the warning that comes after this. Let me repeat myself. Knowing what is at stake, what you are going to gain, all, including being seen as children of God, that's what is at stake. That you have God as your God and you're called as children, that you have the new heavens, the new earth, 
this new Jerusalem in a place where there is no longer evil. Your imagination and your conceptualization of what is to come helps you to understand the warning that comes after this and how seriously you take this warning. What is this warning? He gives this uh, statement, right? Uh, before I touch the warning, he says, enduring suffering is not the same as victorious overcoming. Some of you might think I'm enduring suffering. But the, the mere fact that you endure suffering does not uh, equate to victorious overcoming. Some of us endure suffering because you've got no other choice. You've got no other choice. You're bitter about it. You hate it and you're a real thorn in the flesh to many because you keep reminding them, I'm suffering, I'm suffering. Nobody cares. Nobody helps me. Nobody wants me. That's not exactly overcoming. <laughs> that is just pure suffering. <laughs> Unabated and unleashed on others. We're called to be victorious in our overcoming and we see this in people who in spite of their suffering are still filled with hope, still filled with joy, still filled with faith and are overflowing with love. So is your endurance of suffering causing you bitterness that you unleash on others or are you using it to overcome that in spite of all this suffering you go through, that you hold on to this faith, hope, and love? Now let me come to the warning. There is this exclusion list. It's not exhaustive again. But it's a general category that says that all of this is available to this group of people, but beware that some will be excluded and they will be put into this second death and eternal death. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. Now let me unpack what that means. Who are the cowardly? In the context of the seven churches of Revelation, the cowardly are those who profess, yes, Caesar is Lord. Yes, I will worship your deity, your trade gal deity. Yes, I will succumb to the pressures of this world and deny my God, even though I say he is God. So the cowards are the ones who, in the face of threat of death on their life, they are unwilling to make that public profession that Jesus is Lord. Now, what I'm saying is really going to be very hard for some. And I know it is hard, but I would not be a proper pastor and shepherd if I don't say it. <laughs> and this is it. I have many friends, and trust me, they are really good and close friends, who come to me and say, Pastor, I'm a Christian, I acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but... And then you add in their ex whatever excuse they have. Now, to them, it's a reason. But I really don't want to test that reason before God. Some of it relates to I'm the eldest in the family, I'm the male, and uh, you know, my parents will be so upset, they'll be so heartbroken, and they won't, you know, they'll reject me. So I urge you, when you look at this text, 
think of that in mind. Here you are and you're afraid of the rejection of your parents. Uh, the early Christians who were called cowardly were the ones who confessed Christ, confessed Caesar, sorry, confessed Caesar as Lord, curse Christ or else die. Uh, would you think that they have a stronger reason to, a stronger excuse or reason to say, uh, I'll do this? And so for those of you who have been wavering on this point, it says, you know, God will know, God will understand. Would you look at this issue for what it truly is? That you're unable to take this last step in total conviction to say Christ is Lord. I did have a friend, a young friend who asked the same question. He says, yeah, but it will break my parents' heart. I says, uh, aren't you lying to them now? He cried. And again, I'm not doing this because I want to see you cry. I'm doing this because I have to confront people with the truth of where you are at. That your confession to God is there internally, but it's not total. And I know you do this not because you're a coward, because you know, you'd willingly throw yourself in front of a car in order to save something, someone. But there is something that is a physical block for you to publicly confess Christ as Lord. What is it? Face that. Cowardly, unbelieving. Unbelieving are the people who are like, well, yeah, I just become a Christian because they have the right kind of community, right kind of connections. I can sell my insurance. I can sell my investment. I can do whatever and survive. They're nice people especially Methodist churches, middle, upper income people. Sure, got makan one. <laughs> but they don't believe. They say, I'm here more because of the community than I'm here because I truly believe that He is Lord. And you know they don't believe because when it comes to the crunch to actually living out their faith, they choose to go their way. So I've said this before. Many people are Christian in tradition, Christian in community, atheistic in their faith. They don't really live out their faith when it comes to the push. The vile. Who are the vile? The Bible actually gives this definition normally in two forms. The sexually immoral and the idolaters. How do we know this? Because throughout the Bible, it's peppered as abomination, vile. And, and the general list that comes under that is idolatry and sexual immorality, depraved sexual immorality. Now I say this again because many people say all will be saved. Because there's a group of people who do believe and say, oh, God is good and He will never ever send anyone to hell. Yeah, maybe he won't send anyone to hell unless that person himself wants to be there by rejecting God. Are we in that category of the vile? Again, the seven churches, many practice idolatry by basically worshipping the various things. Now, we tend to think idolatry, you've got patong or idol there and you're offering incense and all stuff. But let's take it. An idol, right? 
an idol is something that gives you comfort that is outside from God. Also known as an addiction. Okay? And so if money is what gives you comfort, security and control and not God, that is your idol. You cannot let go of it because it is your source of all is well in this world because I have a big fat bank account. And I've met enough rich people to know that all of that can just disappear. Bad investment decision, treachery from a friend, it can all be gone. The vile, idolatry, what are you chasing in that gives you comfort in this world that is not of God? What are the addictions that you worship that distract you and say all is well? Murderers, not just physically, but those who destroy and tear down others. The sexually immoral is a repetition of what is vile. Okay, but think that people who are engaging in immorality, sexual immorality, what is that? Sex outside of marriage as far as the Bible is concerned. Fornication. And the fornication is a dogged, preserved, dogged, persistent uh, dabbling in that which is not right. Magic arts. Now, we might be translating magic art. Okay, I'm not a magician. I don't do abra, kadabra, p'ching. But magic arts was a general category for those who practice the art of deception and redirection. By whatever means that you use, if you are a magic art practitioner, bomo, okay? And back then, even as it is now, some people say, oh, there is the black arts and there is the white arts. Trust me, the Bible doesn't distinguish that. <laughs> it says any practice of the occult is not of God and therefore an abomination to God. Now, please don't go pelting all these uh, street magicians who do that. And a lot of them are doing it for entertainment. The magic arts practitioners here, uh, who are, who are, what John is referring to, are those who are using it in order to basically gain spiritual power in order to overcome others. Okay, so there's a difference between people who do this as entertainment, right? as opposed to those who are doing it and dabble in it as an occult spiritual thing. But those who practice deception in order to destroy others out of greed, out of covetousness, they face all these issues. And a repetition, idolaters, all liars. I'm sure after this, people are going to ask, Pastor, what about white lies? <laughs> what if I'm lying to save somebody else's life? I think you need to look past the literal interpretation to the symbolism of it. All liars, particularly those who are of the devil, intend that their lies would destroy. And therefore, when you destroy, kill, steal, destroy, then you are a liar in the mold of the father of lies. That's why Jesus says, your father is the devil, for he is the father of all lies. So are you a truth-speaking person who speaks truth even when it hurts you because you know that truth will set people free? 
this second death, uh, Bible puts it as burning sulfur. When I think about that, I'm thinking about uh, uh, Toba and all these uh, volcanoes in Indonesia. You know, they tell you that you smell sulfur. I don't know why particular sulfur, uh, but it is essentially a never-ending death. And people will argue, is that literal? Is that symbolic and all that? I don't want to go down there. Essentially, death is death. Uh, how do we go forward from this? Now, I've, I've kind of left you in a rather dark place because these are, the, these are all the exclusion lists. We are all called to overcome. Victorious overcoming. Not a whiny, binging, uh, make life difficult for everybody kind of thing. But a reminder that in spite of our suffering, by the grace of God, we go to meet our maker with dignity and honour. We are also called to dwell with and be indwelt by God. This thing that happens at the end, God has repeated many times, I will be their people. I will be with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will be with them. Repeated many times throughout the Old Testament, New Testament. But in particular, when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. When we call Jesus Emmanuel, that word Emmanuel is the same word that is being used here. Be with. Tabernacled. Together with. He is already with us. We are already in this process of renewal and replacement. The dead spirit in us has been replaced with the spirit of God. The renewal in life, in the fruitfulness of the spirit, is ongoing until that final day when lo and behold, in a twinkling of an eye, you will suddenly translate into the kingdom of God and you will be there new body that goes on I don't know how long so will you take these moments especially during the season of Lent to dwell with be indwelt with God hold on to this promise Lord you have promised that you would be with us and I will be with you I am beginning that process will you make yourself more real more present with me lastly is this call to faith, hope, and love? If you have no faith, you cannot have any hope. And if you have no faith and hope, how will you love? Because all of it is hopeless. I repeat this. Huh? We need to have faith that these words are true. Trustworthy and true. It requires faith in a thing unseen, yet you know it's there. Without this faith that these things will happen, you would not have hope. Most people who don't believe in God are very pessimistic people because they don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe that things end well. So when they look at the current reality, it is hopeless. If I have cancer now, it is hopeless. If I walk out, I might get whacked by a car. It is hopeless. End of life. But we instead have this. Because of faith, we hope in the trustworthy word of God that says that He will wipe every tear. 
the more death, the more mourning. Everyone that we have let go to God, we will meet again. And I tell you, you won't cry tears of pain, you will be crying tears of joy. Because we will be at that great banquet again together. So be this people of faith, of hope and love. Because even as we have lost those we love, we still continue to love because we know at the end, they all come back. I've not lost them because I know where they are. You only lose something when you don't know where it is. I've lost my keys. Where is it? I don't know. But if you lost someone and you know they're with God, you have this hope and faithfulness and love that says we will see them again and that joy will know no bounds. Let us pray, brothers and sisters. Lord, you show us your glorious end. And I know for many, some are very happy, Lord, that I've ended the sermon. But Lord, may your ending be sweeter, so much sweeter than we can ever ask or imagine. May our hope be ever anchored, not in this life, but in the life to come. And help us to order ourselves in accordance to this eternal hope that you will wipe away every tear, that what we now experience as a, as a vague mirror, Lord, as a poor reflection of you being with us, will be fully realized when we are there finally in the body with you, risen again, replaced, renewed, and ever loving you. Grant us this faith, Lord. Grant us this hope in you. And grant us the love that knows no bounds. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let me invite you to stand as we sing this hymn of uh, dedication. He makes everything new. I'm going to ask Sister Ruth to play it once through because uh, it may be new for us. It's on uh, 726. It's a new hymn, but it's one that reflects the words of our sermon and our text for this day. Play once through. Mm -hmm. 